Thank you for staying tuned. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman. This is the commentary to Parashat Bahar. If you're following along on the written notes, we are in the middle of the uh, page five. We are talking about the uh, Jubilee, the Yovel, as well as the seventh year um, of release, uh, the seventh year where we let the land lie fallow, which is the Shemitah. We have been contrasting and or comparing the Sabbath views uh, that the Bible has been uh, affording us, and we've been doing so under the... um, under the influence as well of the Talmud. The reason we're using the Talmud in this particular exercise is because um, today it's very difficult to understand these two concepts, the seven year of letting the the land lie rest as well as the 50th year of release for all people, um, the the Shemitah and the Yovel respectively. We understand the Sabbath, the Shabbat, because we're able to keep that wherever we're at as Jews and as Gentiles who have been grafted into Israel. However, the other two concepts, the Yovel and the Shemitah, seem to be tied more closely to um, people dwelling in the land and or the land itself recognizing these two concepts. So the Talmud is providing us some insights into some questions about um, when and how we should keep these particular mitzvot. Otherwise, as the rabbis have noted, of the 613 mitzvot that the Moshe has uh, given to us from, from uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the 613, of course, following the Rambam's list of those mitzvot, of those 613, only 279 of those can be um, kept today only 279 because a lot and if you notice um just from the numbers alone um the remaining uh, uh missing mitzvot there that we cannot keep much of them are largely tied into um temple service and or tabernacle worship things like that so let's pick up our commentary in the middle of page five we just read a, a lengthy talmudic quote from uh, tractate arachin uh, daf 32b daf means page and so now we're going to contrast um what they just talked about as far as the jubilee which is the 50th year we're going to bring it down now and draw some contrasts to the shemitah um they just the the Talmud introduced uh, the Mishnah had uh, asked uh, had made a ruling that the um, the Shemitah I'm sorry that the that the Jubilee only applies when the um, tribes are in the land when all of them are there and that they're not intermingled. Um, let me just back up a little bit. Uh, let's see. Uh, in the middle of the Talmud quote there from the um, from the Gemara. Uh, it reads, one might have assumed that if they were there, speaking of the tribes, that if they were there but intermingled the tribe of Benjamin with that of Judah and the tribe of Judah with that of Benjamin, because they actually were intermingled, uh, Benjamin and Judah had intermingled, um, that even the laws of Jubilee should apply. Therefore it is said unto all the inhabitants thereof, which which is a verse that the Gemara interprets uh, to mean only at the time when its inhabitants are there, where they ought to be, but not when they are intermingled. And then Rabbi Nachman ben Isaac said they counted the jubilees, and he's going to provide the din. By the way, he's going to we're going to go with his ruling uh, because it's really a, a, a um, we have two rabbis asking two questions. Of course, we have Rabbi Judah, and then we have Rabbi Nachman. Uh, Rabbi Nachman said they counted the jubilees to keep the years of release holy. They did count them. Um, that will be the that will be right in the view of the rabbis who hold that the fiftieth year is not included. But according to Rabbi Judah, who holds that the fiftieth year counts both ways, why was that necessary to count the jubilees? It would have been enough if the years of release alone—that is to say, the shemitah—I'm um, sorry, the yeah, the jubilees had just been counted. Hence, we must say this is not in accord with the view of Rabbi Judah. Now, 
in contrast to the Jubilee, which remember, Jubilee is the 50th year. Jubilee it refers to the sounding of the trumpet which signals the year of release. Jubilee does not mean release itself. But the Shemitah is related to the seventh year when the land lies fallow. So in contrast, the interpretation is that the Shemitah, this is according to the uh, Talmud, uh, in contrast to the Jubilee, the, the interpretation that the Shemitah, is that the Shemitah applies even if only one Jew is occupying the land. Okay, Contrasted to um, all of the Jewish people and all the tribes must be in the land, in essence, not in exile, for the Jubilee to be in effect. But by contrast, for the Shemitah, we can actually apply the Shemitah even if one Jew is occupying the land. Were this not so, then slaves would never be set free as they awaited the arrival of the Jubilee, since from antiquity, all of the tribes have not occupied the land. In other words, if we place an impossible standard on the um, Shemitah, like we've done more or less with the Jubilee, then we'll never have slaves being released. Besides, it's every 50th year that the tribes or that people are released during the Yovel, during the Jubilee, when compared to the Shemitah, which is a smaller waiting period, only seven years. And who's got time to wait for a second Yovel to come around? Hey, uh, you know, we've been a slave for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. I'm not getting any younger here. So you see the, see the logic in allowing the Shemitah to apply. In fact, the gradual dismemberment of the tribes of Israel started as early as the book of the as the books of the kings in Second Kings ten, twenty nine through thirty three. We see the tribes breaking up, and for this reason, the Torah uses the word in plural when referring to the Yovel, the Jubilee, but in singular when referring to the Shemitah. And that little. Um, clue that that Hebraic nugget allowed the sages to come to the right decisions there. Nevertheless, kindness and freedom was to be proclaimed among slaves as the Gemara once again states our rabbis taught. And again, the Gemara recognizing that even though all the tribes are not in the land uh, for the Yovel, what are we to do with slaves? Are we to just say, well, I'm sorry, not enough tribes are in the land so you can't be set free. So the Gemara actually practices or understands or introduces leniency which is a good thing to do. In other words, there's grace even as um, outlined in the Gemara. Let's pull our quote from the same Masaket, from the same tractate, um, Archin. Um, this time, I'm sorry, it's not from the same Masaket. This time it's from uh, uh, Masaket uh, Kiddushin Daf 22a. <clears throat> reads, quote, Because he is well with thee, he must be with, in essence, equal to thee in food and drink that thou shouldest not eat white bread and he black bread, thou drink old wine and he new wine. They're speaking of the, the master and his slave when they say he and thee. Thou sleep on a feather bed and he on a straw. Hence it was said, uh, and whenever they say hence it was said, um, or as it, either Shana Amar as it was said, or Kakatuva as it is written, they're re- usually referring to the, um, the written text. Um, sometimes they're referring to other rabbis who said, quote unquote, thus, or who wrote the quote unquote, but in this case, they're quoting another rabbi. Uh, hence it was said, whoever buys a Hebrew slave is like buying a master for himself, end quote. An odd feature of the Jubilee, if I could ter- turn my discussion in a slightly different direction, um, is its starting point. Now, um, some of you listening to my con- to commentary, those of you who have been maybe brought up in Christian circles, have never been introduced to these concepts of Jubilee and Shemitah, Yovel and Shemitah, the 50th year and the 7th year, respectively. And the reason why is because perhaps you've been taught that these laws have been superseded now that Messiah has come and died and resurrected. And, of course, since we 
Torah students, those of you listening to my commentary who do not espouse to this view that the Torah has been superseded and done away with, are interested in pressing back into the Torah, then what you've been introduced to are topics that even though we cannot walk into them fully, because either we A, don't live in the land, or B, we're not within a Jewish community, nevertheless, we find it incumbent upon ourselves to study every aspect of the Torah in either A, anticipation of being able to get to the land and or return there and live there when Messiah comes, or B, we study the Torah because it is God's word. And all of God's word bears relevance on our lives, one way or another, even if we have to um, allow for those parts that we cannot walk into, such as the remaining mitzvah that we cannot um, walk into, like the the ones regarding uh, the tabernacle and temple and such. Nevertheless, we should study God's word, even the parts that we cannot um, uh, walk into. Because, um, as the sages have pointed out, study of God's word is a form of worship itself. In fact, study or searching God's word for details and for answers is actually a midrash on the fact that the Torah, if you were to take all of the words of the Torah and lay them out and count them up, and when I say Torah, I mean Breshit through Dvarim, if you were to take all those words and put them, um, string them out in a linear fashion, one right after the other, you'll find that there are an even number of words. I don't know exactly how many off the top of my head, but I know that there are an even number of words. So if you were to pull this trick where you tried to find the exact center of the Torah, the center place where um, all the words come together, just so you could try and find out what they are, well, let me tell you what they would be in English. It's in actually Leviticus chapter 10 and verse... Let me find it here. Um, Leviticus 10 verse um, <clears throat> Why didn't you eat the sin? Especially gave it six. Look, it's blood. Aaron answered. Um, I think it's Leviticus 10 verse uh, 20. Let me just check my Hebrew for a second, real quick. I apologize for this rabbit trail I'm chasing. It's interesting nuggets for some of you, boring for others. Here we are. It's um, it's actually Leviticus 10, verse 16, which in English reads, Then Moshe, Moshe carefully investigated what had happened to the goat of the sin offering. Moshe carefully invest, investigated what happened to the goat of the sin offering, discovered that it had been burned up, and it became a- angry with Elatzar and Ithamar, the remaining sons of Aharon, asked them. And the Hebrew says, Of eight she'ir ha-chata'at, derosh derash, Moshe v'hine. Um, Darosh, I'm sorry, yeah, Darosh Darash. That's translated in your English Bible as um, carefully searched or searched diligently. It's it's whenever we want to kind of intensify the verb or the action, the Hebrew sometimes will simply double the verb. So basically, it says he searched searching, or he by searching he searched, or he's he searched searched. Okay. Um, but we translated as search diligently or carefully investigated or something to that effect. Those two words, that's the very center of the Torah in Hebrew. As far as the, if we count the words, let's say there were a hundred words, then the 50th word would be the center, right? Or if there were an odd number of words, like if there were, um, um, if there were only like, say, um, if there were three words in the Torah, then the second word would be the center, if I could boil it down that far. But if there were only two words, or if there were four words, 
uh, in the Torah, then the second and the third would be the center. Do you understand my illusion so far? So, well, the Torah has an equal number of words, so it's it's two words, and the two words are these two words, Durosh Darash. And you know what Durosh Darash means? It means search, search. Yeah, so um, getting back to my point here is uh, it's it's a high and lofty thing to search the Torah, the, the sages imagine. All right, let's keep going. Um, an odd feature of the jo- of the Jubilee, the Yovel, is its starting point. The text indicates that it is to begin with the sounding of the trumpet on Yom Kippur, a festival which we learned la- uh, last parasha, starts on the 10th of Tishrei. Well, now you're beginning to ask your question. How can a Jubilee year begin in the middle of a month? Because um, Yom Kippur is on the 10th of the month. Something's wrong, right? Seems like the timing's off. Well, the Talmud, once again, is going to help to explain this. Let's pull a quote this time from um, from the Talmud, from tractate Rosh Hashanah, uh, Daf 8b, or page 8b. Quote, And for Jubilee years is the new year for Jubilees on the 1st of Tishri? Again, a question and an answer. Actually, they ask a second question before they answer. Surely the new year for Jubilees is on the 10th of Tishri, as it is written on the Day of Atonement, shall ye make proclamation with the horn. What authority is here followed? In other words, they're concerned. We can't just say what what we think the answer is without asking what authority gives us the um, um, the right to say what it is and what it isn't. Um, Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yochanan um, ben Barocha, as it has been taught. He's the one that's going to give us our authority. He teaches, quote, and, and, and of course, as it been taught, and ye shall howl the 50th year. Um, what is the point of these words? It is this. Since it says on the Day of Atonement ye shall make a proclamation, I might think that the year is sanctified from the Day of Atonement onwards. Therefore it says, and ye shall sanctify the 50th year. This teaches that it is sanctified from its inception. On this ground, Rabbi Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben uh, Baroka, laid down that from the new year to the Day of Atonement, slaves were neither dismissed to their homes nor subjugated to their masters, but they ate and drank and made merry during those ten days, uh, wearing garlands on their heads. When the Day of Atonement came, which was on the 10th of Tishrei, the Bet Din sounded the horn, which was the, the Jubilee, the Yovel, the horn. Slaves were dismissed to their homes and fields returned to their original owners, and the rabbis... What do they make of this verse? They say it teaches that you are to sanctify years, but not months. Quote. Thus, from the Talmudic quote there, we see that the Jubilee is its own type of new year of sorts, Okay, commencing not ten days later on Yom Kippur, but rather on the first of the seventh month, as the Gemara explains. In other words, the Jubilee is actually in accordance with the um, with the Rosh Hashanah. Uh, and the Gemara explains, quote, But what of Jubilees? which do not commence with the evening and yet are reckoned in. This follows with the view of Rabbi Yochanan ben Ishmael, the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Barocha, who said that the Jubilee commences with the new year. Uh, Rabbi Shisha, the son of Rabbi Ida, said, in fixing the number, the Tana, uh, the Tana are the, the, some rulers of those days, The uh, uh, um, um, I said last time I wouldn't explain who the Tana was. The Tana is just a name given to a set of rulers in a particular year. We have the Amoraim, the Tanaim, um, and, and the the Acharonim and uh, and such. I'll explain that in a different commentary more. But they're they're just a, a set of, a name given to a set of rulers in a certain period. 
like we might say, the church fathers or something like that. Uh, whereas we don't recognize church fathers today so much as we recognize them in a time period gone by. That's that's what we mean by the Tana. In fixing the number, the Tana reckon the only New Year's that are not inaugurated with some ceremony. But he does not reckon those that are inaugurated with a ceremony. Unquote. And that quote from the Gemara is from the same Masechet, the same tractate, Rosh Hashanah, this time on a different daf, a different page. It's on 7b this time. So, now it can be deduced that the Jubilee year, the 50th year, begins on the first day of the Jewish seventh month, Tishrei 1, but the slaves do not return to their own land until the trumpet, the shofar, is sounded on the 10th day of the seventh month, which is in accordance with um, uh, uh, um, Tishrei 10, which is uh, Yom Kippur, 10 days later. Let's talk about this this principle of of resting, working and resting. And in this last section um, this, of my commentary, we're on the bottom of page 6. Let's talk about work, working and resting. And of course, this is going to capture Sabbath principles as well as the Jubilee and the, um, the, the, um, the Shemitah. All of this information that we've been talking about can seem fairly insignificant to us living with a Western mentality. And what I mean by that is we've inherited... A, uh, a tradition uh, in the West that you know we're kind of rugged individualists. We kind of do our own thing, and unfortunately, that permeates our, our our biblical thinking as well. So that when we talk about these Sabbath principles of working and resting, sometimes we get the impression that God is no longer interested in us working and resting. That rather we're just to rest continually, and that work is just kind of put off. Meaning, um, we've got this kind of retirement principle in mind all the time. But um, the, the concepts of working and resting were extremely important to those living in the land, especially during the time of the Tanakh when the Torah acted as the living constitution as well as the daily guide for godly living. We didn't have a separate constitution that we could abide by. Those living in the land in the time period of the Tanakh, the Torah was their national constitution. It was, in fact, their blueprint for living on a wider scale than we enjoy it today. Even in the land of Israel today, where we've got secular constitution um, determining um, ways in which to govern your lives. And, of course, if you're living in another country such as uh, uh, United States or Great Britain or Australia or China or something like that. Well, then you've got the 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 law of the land to contend with, so or to compete with with the Torah. Either way you look at it. So um, we should not be so easy to dismiss the Torah because when God gave the Torah, He expected it to be the national constitution of the land. And here, couched within this tiny parasha, uh, Parashat Bahar. We see an awesome display of the mercy and the compassion that Hashem has for all of his created subjects, whether they be Jew or non-Jew, slave or free. Okay, The Torah speaks to every social group there. The Torah paints a picture of work and rest, slavery and freedom, which spiritually amounts to life and death. Now how so? Well, in the Renewed Covenant, in the Apostolic Scriptures, in the book of Galatians, Rav Shaul tells us this, and let's read from chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. Quote, Don't delude yourselves. No one makes a fool of God. A person reaps what he sows. Those who keep sowing in the field of their old nature in order to meet its demands will eventually reap ruin. But those who keep sowing in the field of the Spirit will reap from the Spirit everlasting life. So let us not grow weary of doing what is good, for if we don't give up, we will in due time reap the harvest. Therefore, as the opportunity arises, let us do what is good to everyone, and especially to the family of those who are trustingly faithful, end quote. And that's, of course, David Stern's rendering of those verses. Notice that he uses harvest 
language. Well, the better half of Leviticus chapter 25 uses harvest language, which is sowing and reaping, working and resting, according to faith. And in other words, to leave the ground unplowed for an entire year requires faith indeed. Wouldn't you agree? Especially living in an agricultural land such as Israel, where you can't just, like today, like if you, let's say you're living in America, and many of us living in rural America don't have a clue as to what agricultural um, concepts the Torah is describing because we don't plow land, we don't work the crops, we don't live our lives according to our harvest. When we need food, we simply go down to the store and we buy the food. We don't have a concept of, of working and resting to sustain our very lives. But in the days of the Tanakh, um, and in some places of America, and of course in some places of Israel, if they don't work the land, they're not going to eat. Today, our faith lies in the fact that we have rested from our labors of self-righteousness. Um, building on this notion of people who try to work their way to God's um, approval. Before our faith in Messiah, we worked year after year to meet our own needs. Surely, if we weren't working to get God's approval, we were certainly working simply to sustain ourselves. Our harvest, if it, as it were, um, was the product of our own hands. We could say, before we found Messiah, that I have gained this. I have worked this land, and therefore the produce is mine, and I deserve to eat it. Consequently, however based on the biblical principle that God supplies everything, whether we know it or not, our harvest was a harvest of death. Even though it was a harvest of provision, we got it by our own hands. <clears throat> but when it comes to the spiritual principle of, of building ourselves up instead of letting God build us up, it's a harvest of death. By contrast, to place one's trusting faithfulness in the atoning work of the Messiah... Yeshua, I might add, is to rest from one's own labors. Do you see the difference there? To be sure, without the faith of Messiah at work in our lives, we truly do not have a proper concept of Shabbat. What I'm describing here, of course, is the legalistic notion that I can earn my way to God's favor, that I can earn my way into God's places of promise, into God's covenant. Earning one's way into God's covenant is what's described as legalism in any way, in, in any religion. If there is a religion that is teaching that if you do X, Y, Z, God will reward you, well then, um, and that reward is couched in the terms of covenant, membership, and or eternal life, then that is what a, that's tantamount to legalism. Fortunately, the Torah does not teach that. To rest... The Sabbath, remember the verb, the verbal form of Shavat means to rest. To rest is to cease working in our own fields, to try and gain God's approval by doing something for God. And once we rest, we begin rest, I'm sorry, once we cease working, we begin to rest in the fields of the Master. You see how that works? When we were in the world, we were slaves to sin. Notice the terms I'm, I keep interweaving um, into this commentary here. Work, rest, Sabbath, fields, slaves. If you're following along in the um, written commentary on the uh, middle of page 7, then you'll see that the language that I'm using is in green. It's in, co it's in green color. Um, because the green reminds me of the earth. And I'm trying to kind of tie in this notion of 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 the of the uh, earth and us. Remember how we talked about in part A about the man and his tie into the land. <clears throat> when we were in the world, we were slaves to sin. 
But now in Messiah Yeshua, we have experienced our spiritual jubilee, our spiritual yovel, our spiritual year of release. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free by the power of his Sabbath rest. And in being set free by the power of his Sabbath rest, we rest in his finished work. We no longer have to work to be accepted in God's sight, as if such work would have been accepted anyway. God did not accept self-effort. God only accepts genuine trusting faithfulness to the giver of the Torah, namely himself, and to the Messiah found therein. Israel, uh, in the first century, did not work so much as they sought to be accepted on the basis of who they were. It was not a is not it was not a legalism of doing in the first century, so much as it was a legalism of being. They thought that if they could just become Jews, if they weren't already, then God would accept them into his covenant promises made with the fathers, namely salvation and a place in the world to come. Today, Christianity, as well as many streams of Judaism, seem to wrestle with this notion of doing and being. What is it that gains God's attention? And what I'm trying to explain here is that the Torah teaches us that if we want to get God's attention, if we want God's approval, then we need to surrender anything that we're doing, and we need to surrender anything that we're supposedly trying to be. What does the Torah teach us in the book of Galatians again? Quote, what the Messiah has freed us for is freedom. This is Paul talking again. Therefore stand firm and don't let yourselves be tied up again to a yoke of slavery. End quote. What is the slavery that Paul is describing in the first century? Again, <clears throat> it is not the slavery of doing that the, that the Christian church describes today. The Christian church describes the first century Jews as ostensibly doing the Torah to be accepted before God. That's not what the slavery is that Paul's talking about. The slavery that he's referring to is the prevailing halakha that teaches that Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come. Therefore, it is a slavery of being, not a slavery of doing. It's a slavery that says, because I am, God must accept me. And that, of course, also is legalism. But it's a different twist on legalism. It's not a legalism that says, if I do X, Y, Z, God will accept me. It's a legalism that teaches, because I am, then God must accept me. And, of course, both notions are wrong. God does not accept you based on what you do, and God does not accept you based on what you are. God accepts you based on what Yeshua is and has done for you. Another place in the book of Hebrews reads this way, quote, So there remains a Shabbat keeping for God's people. For the one who has entered God's rest has also rested from his own works. The word works there, Aragon, um, refers to the halakha that teaches that we are, therefore God must accept us. God has rested from, I'm sorry, God has rested from his own works as God, uh, I'm sorry, let me read the verse again. For the one who has entered into God's rest is also rested from his own works, the working of being, I should say, as God did from his. And, and God's working actually was a doing. So it is a, there's a comparison there. Therefore, the book of Hebrews goes on to say, let us do our best to enter that rest. Isn't that interesting? We work to enter. Kind of a, a neat midrash on the terms doing and being. We work to enter the rest so that no one will fall short because of the same kind of disobedience. The rest that the writer of the book of Hebrews is offering is the rest in Messiah. The rest that Yeshua offers all who are weary and heavy laden. He says, come unto me and I'll offer you rest. Rest from your labors. And again, the legalism that teaches that you are 
and I'm speaking to Jewish people of the first century who felt that their 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 um, status of being Jewish was was alone enough to secure a place in the world to come. But that's legalism. The legalism of being is actually working. Conversely or comparatively, the legalism of doing is also working. Either way you slice it, it's legalism and it's wrong. Con- and so what Yeshua offers to us is a genuine rest from either a doing or a being. He says, come unto me and I'll give you your true identity. And in giving you your true identity, I will fill you with my spirit. And in filling you with my spirit, the works that you do will be my works. So um, we finally have one more quote from the book of Leviticus to tie in these two quotes from the books of Galatians and Hebrews respectively. What does it say in Leviticus 26 verse 2? Quote, keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am Adonai, end quote. Why do I end with that verse? Because the Sabbath on the natural level is the ceasing of our malachot, our works. But the Sabbath on the spiritual level if we want to keep God's Sabbaths, then we must, we're commanded to enter into the rest of Messiah. Do you see it there? If God commands us to keep the Sabbath on the natural level, it means six days are allotted for working, and the seventh day is a ceasing from your malacha, your work. That's on the natural level. But if the Sabbath is a spiritual principle as well, which it is, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us it is, then the Sabbath rest that we are commanded to keep, as it were, is and I'm using uh, a quote from George, uh, my, my my boss, uh, a Messianic Rabbi George. In this sense, ceasing from working, in the spiritual sense, speaks of entering into the rest that God provides for us in the Messiah Yeshua. And so that's why I ended with the pasuk from Leviticus chapter 26, verse two. And with that, I'm going to break off. Um, I'm going to, well, you know what, I, I, think, I don't think I will. It's 30 minutes into the commentary. I was going to just break it off here and call it Part B. Um, but what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to continue in my commentary. I'm at the top of page 8, and there's not very much left, only a page left. So I'm going to go ahead and read this information from the Nahar Dia um, section. And that will be the end of the commentary, and it will just be two parts. Part A, which is about 45 minutes long, and then Part B, which is probably going to be about 40 minutes long. Okay. This next section is entitled Nahar Dia. Nahar Dia means river of knowledge, okay? Nahar means river, and Dea means knowledge. Um, this was originally a, a running commentary that I included with every parasha that I'd written, um, and it, it was sections that were taken directly from um, the footnote number seven. If you'll look, is the uh, www.jafi.org.il, which is commentary out of Israel. And uh, I'm just going to go ahead and include this Nahar Dea section. This section under the Nahar Dea, I must say, are not my own words. They are lifted directly from the the, uh, uh, the footnote that I just mentioned. Having said that, however, the reason I want to include this is because of the question that I introduced way on at the beginning of Parashat Bahar. And that question was this. Why does God say to Moshe um, at the beginning of Parashat Bahar? Let me just turn to it again for those of you who don't remember my question. In uh, chapter 25, um, Pasuk 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Speak to the Israelite people and say to him, Vaidaber Adonai el Moshe Bahar Sinai lemor, Daber el Bnei Yisrael va'amarta alehim. And then he goes on to talk about when you enter the land, you have to observe a Sabbath rest. So the sages ask the question, How come this Pasuk is introduced with the phrase, um, 
the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. For after all, weren't all of the mitzvot, or nearly all of them, given on um, Bahar Sinai? Why do we have this verse singling out this detail of being given on Bahar Sinai? And with that, let's turn to Nahardea for an answer. The uh, sub- subtitle to Nahardea is entitled, The Ways of the Midrash, Mount Sinai and the Sabbatical. There's a well-known question from the sages. What is the issue of the sabbatical doing together with Mount Sinai? Um, the question is taken from the Sifra on Bahar 1. A question based on the opening uh, verses of the, tol- of the Torah portion of Bahar, which we just read, quote, And God said to Moses, On Mount Sinai, saying, When you come to the land that I give you, and the last will rest a set, and, the, and, and the last uh, will rest the Sabbath to God, which is, again, Leviticus um, uh, 25, verse 1 and 2. The, the, the sages go on to notice that since all the commandments were given to Moses on Sinai, why here specifically is it mentioned that the principle of the sabbatical year was given at Sinai? In other words, what can we learn from the fact that the Torah mentions, quote, Mount Sinai here? And, and the basic premise, in case you're not following my logic, is this. Every word of the Torah is carefully selected by Hashem, by the Holy One, blessed be He. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, has no superfluous words of the Torah. Therefore, if one passage says, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and another passage simply also says, and the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, well then the Holy One, blessed be He, had something important to teach us regarding the extra wording of the uh, the mountain of Sinai. And that's why are, that's where the, the sages are going with this discussion. Okay, Some of you might think that we're just chasing rabbits. Number one, rabbits aren't kosher. Number two, we're not chasing rabbits. <laughs> as as uh, Pastor Mark is fond of saying, we're chasing a rabbi. Okay, We're not chasing a rabbit, we're chasing a rabbi. Um, why then is, is Mount Sinai mentioned here with no apparent reason? And from here, the use that is made of the question, what is the issue of the, sabbat, of the sabbatical doing together with Mount Sinai? In every case that the narrator wishes to point out two issues which stand side by side where the connection between them needs to be clarified. This question is characteristic to one of the methods by which the sages interpreted the Bible which we call smichut parshiot or um, proximity of issues. Okay? Um, behind this interpretive method lies the belief that the Bible is not a random and disordered collection of verses chapters and issues but rather a divine creation and therefore is also meaning um, and 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 also and therefore there is also meaning to the proximity of each of uh, of the issues the smichot the smichot parshiot the sages therefore say that when reading the Bible one must also look at the additional meaning which arises from the connection between a verse and that which follows it the connection between one commandment and another, and another close to it between two psalms or two stories just like I did when I talked about the juxtaposition of the Shabbat to the uh, Shemitah or the Shabbat to the um, Yovel this method of exegesis is found hundreds of times throughout the literature of the sages and in most cases they contain special literary idioms such as quote what does the issue of X have to do with Y in quote that's how you're going to see it show up in the, uh, the Talmuds, the Mishnahs, the Gemaras, the Midrashim, uh, the Sifrei, and following. Or, sometimes you'll see it this way, quote, Why are these found in close proximity? End quote. Sometimes these explanations seem to follow exactly the simple meaning of the text. But in many cases, it is clear that the intention is to use them to give expression to the world of the philosophy and the dogma of the sages in terms of both homiletic and halakha, which is Jewish law. 
Here now are two simple examples of interpretation based on smichut parshiot, okay? Um, we're going to give two examples. First one is A, all right, this example. Rabbi Yehuda says, I'm sorry, Rabbi, uh, let's see, where is this found? Um, this is in the Talmud. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says, it just it literally says um, rabbi, which I explained uh, three or four parshiot ago, that whenever we see the word rabbi without the name after it, and it's capitalized, the word rabbi, it's usually referring to um, um, the one who codified and put together uh, the, uh, the who redacted the Mishnah itself, which was uh, Judah the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says, why is the issue of the Nazarite found in close proximity with the issue of the Sota? We're going to study that um, in, the, in a few weeks when we get to Parashat um, Naso, which is the uh, second commentary in the uh, book of Bamidbar, the book of Numbers. And so the rabbis ask, why do we have the, the uh, law of the Nazarite in close proximity to the Sota? And the Sota is the suspected adulteress, the wife of Sorry about that. The wife of um, of suspected adultery. She's the Sota. Um, let me just pause and say for this one um, Talmida, who is a Kohen, who's listening to my commentaries right now, um, you and I have had many discussions about this particular Midrash, about the Sota. And um, perhaps this is going to give you a little more insight into that passage. Okay, so listen up. Uh, the Talmud. Let's go back there again. Why? Why the close proximity of these two issues? And it and it answers to tell you that anyone who sees a sota in her disgrace will be careful to stay away from wine. <laughs> I'm not sure I totally agree with that, but it makes sense. That's of course taken from Talmud 63a, the Babylonian Talmud. It doesn't tell me which um, a second there. I apologize. Let me have to go back and look that up. Chapter five of the book of Bin of uh, Bin Midbar of Numbers deals with the issue of the sota, whose husband, if you recall, suspects that she has betrayed him, and in order to validate his suspicion or invalidate it, so as to put the husband's mind at rest, the woman is brought to the priest who evaluates her behavior through a complex and detailed ceremony, which eventually shows whether there was any truth to the husband's suspicions, and if so, this woman will bear her sin. Part of the details of the um. Ceremony is where she goes to the priest, the Kohen, and um, he writes some words in a Torah scroll. Then he tears it out and he mixes it with some dirt from the from the from the uh, from the Mishkan. He mixes it up, and uh, it's really quite um, intriguing as to uh, uh, the ceremony itself. We'll get to that when we get to Parashat Naso, but for now we're not going to look at it. Uh, let's keep reading in the uh, Nahardea. Um, Immediately afterwards, the Torah begins to deal with the question of a person who his own free will accepts upon himself the burden of the Nazarite oath, which has as its fundamental principle the abstention from wine. You can read um, uh, Numbers uh, verse 31 there. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi learns from the proximity between the story of the Sota and the issue of the Nazarite that wine was the main cause for the behavior of of the sota, and therefore it is preferable to abstain from drinking the wine. Although, they, again, I might add, they don't, the rabbis don't forbid the drinking of wine. Obviously, wine is used both in biblical times as well as in just about every uh, celebration um, that we have in Jude Judaism today. We have wine present. However, there can um, obviously be the misuse of wine, and in the misuse of wine, um, the rabbis are trying to make a connection between the uh, the two features of the passage in Numbers there, the Sotah, the wife of suspect, and the um, Nazarite there. Let's go on and look at the second one, and then we'll close my commentary, okay? The second um, example 
of these of a uh, of a uh, um, smichut parshiot is uh, the midrash in Bereshit Rabbah 58:5 learns from the proximity of the story of the Akedah, the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22, to the story of the death of Sarah, also uh, near in chapter 23, that Sarah died due to her distress over what happened at the Akedah, and quote therefore the Akedah and the life of Sarah was or the first words of the story of her death, were placed in close proximity, end quote. Um, in other words, because of Isaac's supposed death at the um, sacrifice in Genesis 22, the opening parashat, the parashat Chai Sarah, which talks about the life of Sarah, in other words, it's the opening um, verses that deal with her dying, comes right on the heels of chapter 22, which is the Akidah. And because of the smichut parshiotah's proximity of these two stories to one another, the sages imagine that Sarah's death is related to the um, the binding of Isaac and, and his supposed death. Because in reality, if we follow the narrative, just follow it on, on, in kind of a, um, a linear fashion, it seems to be that Sarah died before... Isaac returned, and therefore Isaac leaves, and she doesn't have any word whether he's alive or dead, and therefore imagining that he died, she gives up the ghost, as it were, as well. And So you can read more about that in the Midrash. I'm not saying that that is exactly what's happening. However, the argument is from silence. It doesn't say that it didn't happen that way. So, the sages just kind of fill in the gaps there. So, that's going to do it for our commentary for today. Um, only two parts to Parashat uh, Bahar, I hope you enjoyed all the Talmudic resources, as well as my own um, insights and uh, um, extra uh, wording and, and explanations to the uh, midrash. Uh, if and the and the mission, I'm sorry. If you're interested again in um, learning more about the Mishnah, the Talmuds, and things like that, do a Google search for it, um, and you can find lots of information there. And or write into me, and perhaps I can share some more resources with you. I'm not a Talmudic expert. I'm not claiming to be a Talmudic expert. Um, to be sure, I can't even read the Aramaic of the Talmud. It's just too difficult for me to understand. So I have to rely on the um, English translations that I have. I have Sansino's translation by Neusner on CD-ROM. Um, uh, the Schotter, uh, uh, the uh, Schottenstein, I believe, makes a, a commentary to the Talmud. I'm sorry, not a commentary, an actual um, translation of it. Uh, and so there are some translations that that you can pick up in English that are highly recommended. But um, other than that, don't just try and jump into the Talmud on your own without um, help from a, uh, a rabbi or a Torah teacher or someone like that, okay? And with that, I bid you a... Um, well, I'm about to say goodbye to you, and I haven't even read the uh, the Kriyat Shema, or the Kriyat Torah. Let's read that first. The closing blessing for the Torah is as follows. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech ha'olam asher natan lanu Torah met vechaye olam nata batuchenu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. The translation. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe. You've given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I bid you a Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, 
and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A, number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. Thank you.